Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 2055-450-NOAH. It's 2055-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah show kicks off this hour. Joining me, my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovenmitz. <laughs> you see that I email? Greet you. Yeah, I uh, I greet you from the igloo that has become my house. <laughs> they didn't tell you when you moved into Dakota Territory that you might just get buried under snow. Nah, it's fine. My dog loves it. I don't. I really don't mind it. I kind of enjoy having the the peace of knowing that nothing is going on. I'm not missing anything in the outside world around me because everybody's at home right now. You enjoy it because you're self you're self sufficient, right? Like you, it doesn't bother you to say, "Hey, you're going to do that on your own." But there, like, there are legitimately people that are like, "I can't get out of my driveway now." What? Yeah, yeah. It's like the people that uh, have trouble when they don't have internet and they don't really know what to do with the computer when it doesn't have internet, right? Absolutely. You want to get into some feedback? Actually, I was wondering if you permit me a, a tiny rant. Sure, rant away, my friend. So uh, this week, because I'm snowed in, we've been we've been snowed in since the beginning of the week. And, you know, this is the time where you normally catch up on all the stuff that that you've been meaning to get around to. You just haven't. Right. And so uh, there are some podcasts out there. Everybody's probably heard of boosting by now. There's some 10,000 podcasts now that are accepting boosts as a way of kind of contributing to the to the ecosystem. And so I thought, you know what, this is probably a good chance. Like I'm, I'm out of excuses. I should probably go and figure out how I can like go donate to people. This is the time of the year where, you know, between Christmas and New Year's, this is the time of the year where I try and give back to some open source um, projects that have been meaningful to me. So I'm, I'm rooting around on, on these uh, particular websites looking for how do I donate to you. And there were a couple of options. They're like, oh, these are the ways that we recommend, uh, you know, you, you send a boost if you're new to this. Mm-hmm. And I went to both of them and they're, they both require you to do it on your phone. It's like mobile apps only. I'm like, well, that's out. That's I don't gross. do finances on my phone. Yep. So I, uh, I send the, the creator an email and they got back to me right away, which was great. And they're like, oh, we'll try doing this. And so I started to walk through this, this path. And this is from a person that is do I'm doing this under duress. I don't want mm-hmm. to buy Bitcoin as a general rule. Why? Right? Like I just, I just don't care. I don't care to manage that. I don't really care about... Um, the ecosystem or anything like that. I think it's well, an how, interesting. How about like Coinbase? Like, could you get into like where they where they basically bankify uh, Bitcoin for you? I mean, maybe, but then like PayPal has done that too and stuff mm-hmm, like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially, it's it's uh, another le- level of investigation that I need to do just because I'm I'm not comfortable doing things unless I understand what's actually happening. Good, especially so. with your money. That's that's great. That's a great practice, Steve. So I was just like, I just want something simple. I just want to give you some a few dollars to show support. I like what you're doing. And I'm going through this process. And uh, so I go through the vendor that they recommend. And I, I get all the way through. I put in my information. It won't take my Visa gift card. So like that was a, uh, now I've got to go find another pay source. So I go and grab, I grab another card. It takes this card. I get all the way through to the end. And I get an error that, that, um, that literally says, oh, well, your account has been locked because um, you've, you've violated our terms of service. And I'm like, I don't even know what I did. Like, I'm literally just walking through the instructions here. And it says, unfortunately, your account has been disabled due to non-compliance with our terms and conditions. Like, I just opened this. I don't <laughs> know how I did that. You know, I, I, I put in my credit card information. I hit next. And all of a sudden, I'm being rejected and my account is locked. So my my tiny little rant is like, if if we're going to get behind a technology, it's the same thing that I have with with Element and um, Matrix behind it. Just like talking about I, the woman if, I love. If if you're gonna want, if you want to have people uh, kind of adopt this, then it needs to be smoother. Like I don't want to spend five hours trying to figure out how to buy a Bitcoin and then put it into a SAT and then send the SAT to the person or the like the creator or whatever. Like 
that is too rough of a ride for me. I just want to give you five bucks or 10 bucks or whatever it is I feel like it's worth and call it a day. Steve, that doesn't sound like fun at all. If it it works, if it doesn't work the first time, that's where the challenge is. Where's your sense of adventure, Steve? Yeah, my sense of adventure is, well, unfortunately for that creator, they didn't get any money today. (laughs) Hey, here's the thing. Okay, so if I'm pushing back on this a little bit, do you see value in the idea that there's an ecosystem? Like the problem is Spotify is taking over the podcast industry, right? They go to these big name creators and they say, hey, you come produce the content for us. It'll be exclusively available here. Isn't that great? And then a bunch of people go to that platform because that's where the person that they want to hear is. And all of a sudden now the whole thing that was great about podcasting from the beginning was that you had niche content and individual content creators that had a wide access to an audience and an audience that had a wide access to varied content. We're throwing that down the tubes in favor of going back to the exact same model we came from. So, you know, when I see things like, I get that there's some rough edges, but do you think there's some value in the idea that this is something that can't, the rug can't be pulled out from podcasters? Of course I do. I'm, I'm, it goes back to the self-sufficient and, you know, self-hosted type mentality that, that I, I really strongly identify with. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I am not, has to work uh, yeah like you know i understand if it just it, everybody makes everywhere you turn they're like oh sats this boost that it's so easy like that that is the the mentality that i had that i had and maybe that's a false mentality but like because it's being put out there and nobody's saying there are paper cuts or like nobody's really talking about hey there's a there's a little step to it or here's a guide to walk through it's like you know, I get bits and pieces of information like on this website from the creator. It was like, hey, go to one of these two places. And then once you have this thing, go like it, it was like spotty. It wasn't a walkthrough. It was like, have this little information. OK, now I got to go figure out what that means. And then there's this little bit of information like, OK, how does this connect to that thing? It's like I'm trying to do this on the 15 minute break between, you know, switching gears because I was doing this during work hours and mm-hmm. I had a little break, you know. Um, I don't have time to sit and do all this stuff. Like I expected I would just like put in my credit card number, you know, sign up with a username and password and call it a day. And then 30 minutes later, I'm not donating. Well, so, I mean, if that's your attitude, I can see how we get there. Yeah. Well, I mean, shouldn't that be what the expectation is? Yeah, I'm, I'm giving you a hard time. No, you're, you're right. The, the reality is that we as technical nerds, because we look and I absolutely hit this with Alta Speed all the time. I have incredibly smart people, people that are way smarter than me that work for me and develop all this crazy cool stuff. And then they bring it out and I'm like, show it to me. And they go to level nine. Right. And they're like, oh, it's very easy. You just get um, and, and, and clone the repository and then just modify these. YAML files. It's like it, by the time you get done, it's like, hold up. Like no human being is going to like if you're a developer, if you're a technical person, like I can follow you, but the client is not going to have any idea what you're talking about. It's gibberish to them. Like it has to be easy. And I think you're right. You know, as, as a person, I've been one of the largest advocates of the Matrix ecosystem out there. I've gotten my my 70 year old mother on Matrix. I've gotten all of my family to include uh, my younger, um, how shall I say, female relatives that don't have any technical aptitude at all and and yeah there are absolutely paper cuts and it, and it and it does bite people and it's funny some of the ones that like people like you and I don't even notice because we skate right we gloss right over it right because it's just a technical thing you look at like oh that's why that's happening and it makes sense to us to them they just go yeah I didn't get the message oh well that's because your encryption keys did yeah all I know is I didn't get the message or in your case all I know is I couldn't donate to the person so I guess where I would I suppose where I would leave that is I think it's great. I think if you're a content creator and you're looking for other ways to monetize your podcast, you might consider doing things like either advertisements or donation through to typical means through like PayPal, coffee, those sorts of things. But I would, I, I, I love the idea of people exploring the bleeding edge to learn what the next great thing is because there's paper cuts today, but as people adopt it, that's where we learn about the paper cuts. That's how we iterate on it. And that's how we get the best system ever. I think that, um, this experience would have went far differently if the the person asking for a donation is like, here's a tutorial. Like, this is me walking through the process, and I can yeah. watch a video of you of them donating to somebody else or whatever. Like, starting a, a wallet from scratch because, like, again, I don't have any of this. You, I've heard these things, but I don't know what any of them actually mean. You know? Do you think if you have to watch a tutorial, even that is too high of a bar for a, the vast majority of people? It is, but I'm, you know, the vast majority of people are probably not going to go and figure out how, like, they're not going to try to do a boost, right? Fair so, enough. Like, there's, 
I'm I'm accepting of like some paper cuts, but but I felt like like if you're going to ask for people to do like to give us in a specific way, then maybe you should actually have instructions instead of assuming people know how to do it. 855 That's 855-450-6624. The email live at will ask you, do you like Boost? Is it a viable ecosystem right now? Or are there too many paper cuts for it to be out there in the wild? Let us know what you think. You ready to get into some feedback, Steve? Absolutely. Our first email comes in from Charlie. Charlie writes in and says, good day, everyone. All the best over the end of the season events. Someone mentioned the Lenovo ThinkPad T470 on a recent show. Is it possible to replace the ThinkPad T470 battery with a mod using a 18650 battery instead of using the electronics from the old battery mold? Also, are the Lenovo ThinkPad T470s able to remove uh, the IME CBIOS or Core Boot or Libre Boot? Does the ThinkPad T470 work with Libre Kernel without closed source blobs? Finally, has anyone been able to get a Lenovo ThinkPad working direct off of solar panel without battery at all? The ultimate off-the-grid laptop, maybe pairing it with a Super Caps to buffer like five minutes of stored public uh, or powered. All the best in 2023. So I guess let's break this down one thing at a time. I'm going to say, particularly after the feedback that we got from the X270, I'm just going to come out and say it. I don't like using non-batteries in or non-OEM batteries in ThinkPads. Haven't had a good experience with it anytime I've ever done it. Um, and so my suggestion is don't go that route. And if you're looking for a laptop that you can do a little bit more modding and playing with, I would go with something like a System76, a Dell, something where the company is going to be a little bit more open to that. I've not found ThinkPads to be to be, you know particularly great in that regard. That said, when you start talking about things like CBIOS and Core Boot and Libre Boot, what I would do there is I would watch some of these companies that rebrand ThinkPads and turn them into freedom-respecting laptops, and I would see what they have to say and which models they're uh, centerized, or centering on. The only thing that I would say keep in mind is you'll notice that a lot of those laptops are running seven to 10 years behind what a current laptop model is. And I think there's a reason for that. Um, Steve, I I wanted to get your thoughts on the solar aspect of this. So to to get everybody kind of caught up and on the same page. So the idea with solar panels is you put them out, they collect the energy that they can collect, but it's not always obviously... The sun doesn't beat down at a perfect angle exactly the same way in exactly a consistent way all throughout the day and all throughout the the night. And worse yet, it's not like an on off thing. It's not like the sun is like, okay, I can't provide you the exact same consistent power. So I'm just going to instantly shut off. It doesn't it doesn't work like that. And so typically your solar panel goes into some sort of a solar controller. That controller then charges a battery and then you siphon the, the power off the battery. If you don't have a battery bank, you can pull power straight off the controller. But again, you're only going to be able to do that when the solar panel is generating power. So thoughts on plugging a laptop directly into a solar panel. Good idea. Bad idea. I have to I have to go with no on this one. Even the uh, the solar panel battery, the solar powered laptops that I have seen, like for the third world countries and stuff like that, they have Mm -hmm. special electronics in to help smooth out some of those, the the sine waves that you're talking about, right? Because electronics are super sensitive to how clean the signal is uh, when, when the power is oscillating. So if you know enough about electronics, you could try to smooth that out yourself. You get an oscillator and, you know, you run your experiments until you're happy with it because there are ways to do it. Or until you blow up your laptop or you'd blow up your laptop. Uh, I personally wouldn't do it. And I also don't really know why you would do this. It it would make the laptop itself only viable during, probably during, I would guess between 11 a.m. and like 2 p.m. when the sun is at its its strongest points. Yeah, I'm I'm with Steve on this one. At a minimum, go with a charge controller, get a 12 volt adapter if you like, and and then go that route or get a bat even the best best option is really get a battery charge the battery pull the energy off the battery our second email comes in from baku baku writes in and says hi there folks i've been going through old episodes and in one episode a listener asked for a recommendation on a slideshow creator while in an episode after a particular one another listener asked about sources of royalty free music and that one that one's project i think i have good recommendations for both First, not one, but two good slideshow creation tools. The first is Photo Film Strip. 
any links to photo film strip in the Debian package repository. The second is imagination, also in the Debian repository. Both of the above are available in repos with many distributions. Now onto the royalty free music sources. Again, I have a couple of them for interested folks. Net labels is the Internet Archive. Any links to archive.org for net labels. And the second is ectoplasm. Any links to ectoplasm.com. Wishing you and Steve and the community a great 2023 ahead. Baku. So, Steve, your thoughts on either uh, slideshow apps or on royalty free music? I think that if the I kind of took a look at the photo film strip. I think that one kind of looks neat. Uh, honestly, I've always just pointed. Um, I forget what the the default one in GNOME is. I have GNOME. I've normally just point, pointed I have GNOME out of a directory of folders and hit um, slideshow <laughs> and called it a day. So um, I've never had a need for for anything more intensive than that. I have to I have to second uh, I have GNOME. So so. To, to, to eliminate a little confusion here, once you install it, it's just called Image Viewer, but the package name is EOG, short for I have, I, I have GNOME, and it is fantastic. As far as image viewers go, I can't think of a better one. Things I like about it, opens immediately when you double-click. KDE, the default one in KDE, I forget what it is that, that, that comes default, but one of the things that's frustrating about it is if you open one image... You go to open another image, it keeps the first, it like adds the second image in, not in a separate window, but it like adds it to like the collection of the first one that you open and all sorts of goofy stuff. So I have GNOME, I have to agree, it just doesn't get much better than that. And we've actually used I have GNOME in uh, production. So we've gone to events where they have like a projector up and there's a speaker talking and those sorts of things. And a lot of times they'll have at events silent auctions. And so as a part of what we do with Speed production is we go through and take pictures of all the things. And then as the announcer talking is like oh buy this thing and it's worth this amount of money and who can i have a bit that kind of stuff they want the the like a rotating picture thing to go through and like you said open a folder drag it into aug and away it goes so uh I, I would agree with you there the other part of it is if you're looking for a slideshow i'm lately this is gonna sound a little crazy to some people i've gotten real fan i've gotten real a fan of uh markdown and just doing slideshows in Markdown, and you put the images in there, put them in a folder, generate a uh, a PDF of the of your of your presentation, and you can use it for for giving talks. You can use it for putting pictures in. And the nice thing about it is, it's just much faster to copy and paste, and then just iterate on you know IMG one, IMG two, IMG three, IMG four, so on and so forth, as opposed to like dragging a picture in and resizing it and stuff like that. Like you can you can do all of that with just copy and paste. So aside about I have GNOME, you can you can do a lot on the command line. And so I've actually, I I proposed with I have GNOME uh, because you can call it from did other really? programs. I did. Such I a wrote nerd. a Java program. I, I really Love am. Uh, but yeah, because you can control it, because it's it's so versatile in terms of the launch options on the command line, um, it, it makes it really easy to call from a, a script or a program that you're writing and interact with it that way. I, there's no technical, there's no techie thing. I can't compete with you on the engagement. But when my wife and I started dating, um, she responded to my request. I, I asked her if she, if, she, if she would go out with me, and she responded in binary code. She wrote me a letter in binary code, <laughs> which I still have, by the way. Wow, that is that is some. Uh, I have a new respect for Sarah. I know, right? And after like few, after she, you know, she hands it to me as if like because you know. So from her, you know, 14-year-old self, it's like, oh, my boyfriend's a geek. Like, he'll understand this. And she hands me this page full of ones and zeros. And I'm like, um, so am I allowed to use, like, an online thing? Nope, do it by hand. I'm like, okay, well, I can add up and I can tell you what, you know, the numerical value is of each one of these. But I have no idea which ASCII character responds to that. I don't know. So a few hours in, she finally gave up and let me go convert it online. But the answer was yes. <laughs> Our third email comes in from, Fri is it Fri Frizzo? I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Hi, Noah and Steve. I hope you had a good Christmas. In an episode 316, Gary had a question about their keyboard or mouse waking up uh, from their computer. I have the same problem, so I decided to take a look for a solution. To change if a device wakes up your system, you have to change the power wake up parameter to disabled in the sysfs file system slash sys. The right way to implement this is using UDEV. It detects the devices being added and triggers changes based on a pattern. For example, a device in the product ID. The linked Arch Wiki has articles that details instructions for all of this. For my Logitech unifying receiver, I ended up with the following UDEV rule, and then he links to 
or gives us an example of the Unit Rule, which I'll have linked for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. I have a reaction to the last episode as well. You recommended the Odroid H3 as a good gift for a geek. It looks very appealing because of the low power consumption and the expandability. I already own an Odroid X, XU4Q myself, and I wanted to share my experience with it. I use it to host a few things like NextCloud and WireGuard, and it works reasonably well. But there are a couple of downsides for me. First, it has a 32-bit processor, which is not supported anymore by NextCloud. Secondly, it seems to have no or limited upstream kernel support. I'm running a fork of the kernel that's still at version 4.14.180. I'm not able to run containers on this kernel, and it probably doesn't have the latest security updates either. I've not, however, experienced any issues with it. Being an ARM processor, other than a limited distro selection, does the H3 work with the upstream kernel? If so, it has none of the downsides I mentioned about the XU4. Thanks for the great recommendation. Best regards, Frizzo. So, Steve, I'll, I'll let you take that one. What do you think of uh, the H3? So the H3 has an Intel x86-based processor, so you don't have to worry about um, any of the ARM stuff or software or anything like that. Um, as a side note, just today, I was looking to see, I replaced my my old Plex server with an H3, and I am saving between 1.2 and 1.5 kilowatts a day just making that change out. That's awesome. Hey, speaking of the, we're going to bring it up again uh, in our next email, which comes in from Tony. Tony writes in and says, hi, Noah and Steve. My parents have an old first gen Amazon Fire Stick. That's finally dying and I'd like to recommend a new device. I'm looking for something that will last a long time, will not slow down over time. I know that all electronics may slow down. But the current Fire Stick is painfully slow. I know Noah has mentioned the NVIDIA Shield before. Is that still a good option? Is running a mini PC realistic? Here are the typical services apps we use. YouTube, Prime Video, Netflix, Plex, and Smarters, which is an IPTV installed via an APK. Steam Link is nice to have since this works well. I may choose that option with my parents to go with. Any help is appreciated. Maybe even a good, better, best ranking would be amazing. I love the podcast. It's the highlight of my Wednesday morning drive into the office. Thanks, Tony. Well, Tony, we appreciate you listening. And a couple of options. So, yeah, I still have in my house, uh, top to bottom, I've used all NVIDIA Shields and been very happy with it. What is driving me away from the NVIDIA Shield is two is threefold. So the first thing is they discontinued the IR receiver on the NVIDIA Shield, which means it took away my ability to use my beloved Intiset remote that I could control both the TV and the uh, NVIDIA Shield. They've replaced it with an RF-based remote, which is our Bluetooth-based remote, which is fine, except it contains a microphone. And the last thing I want sitting in my bedroom is an Android box with a microphone attached to it. So I've been moving away from the NVIDIA Shield, and what I've been moving towards is something called OSMC.TV. It's called the Vero. I've talked about it on the show before. It's been a pick before. Um, and what the Vero allows you to do is run Cody on a box. So you buy this box, you pull it out of the, you pull it out of uh, its packaging, you plug it in, and boom, you have a a, 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 a a Cody box and you're able to use it. Um, so I get all of the same advantages that I would have with the NVIDIA shield. The only downside is it's not going to run some of these other apps. It's, uh, it's only going to, it's only going to run uh, Cody. And so you'd have to get your apps via an add-in for Cody, or you could install your own distro on the box, something like that. Now, Steve, you're going a, a, a different direction with the Odroid. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it comes full circle. So I had, uh, I still have an NVIDIA shield. Love it. I, I went and got a an Apple TV, and honestly, it's been sitting powered off, and I've got a laptop plugged in there, so I'm actually going to replace that with a, an Odroid, um, because honestly, just a web browser and Kodi, and, and I'm good. In terms of Smarters, uh, the IPTV thing, I put a link in the show notes that I think is the app that, that they're talking about, which they okay. do actually have a Linux app. So, oh, good. Um, at least if it is the correct one. Right. So this one's called IPTV Smarters and it literally says Smarters Linux app. So mm -hmm. maybe that will work. Um, I, I personally really think that these little boxes, you know, you can you can get them all done for under two hundred dollars and they do everything that you need them to do. And if you need more space or more RAM or whatever, they're upgradable. So. One of the other things I'll point out is LibreElect.tv. What it is is a distro based around Kodi. So. If you're going the Steve route and you want an actual PC, which it kind of sounds like you might want, um, go that route. Install the distro you want, install a web browser, install Kodi, you'll be great. If you just want 
to uh, have a box that you turn on and it boots up to an interface designed for a TV, that sort of stuff, LibreLect is a great way to go. 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email live at AskNoahShow.com. Tony is with us. Hey, Tony, welcome into the Ask Noah Show. Hey, guys. Uh, thanks for, actually, thanks for reading my email. I appreciate that. You bet. Um, I also wanted to call. Yeah, I wanted to call in and ask a question about Office 365. And I recently took a customer on, and they want to move. Uh, they, I guess they weren't happy with their current IT guy, and they'd like to move over to use us. And <clears throat> I've set up Office 365 before, but I'm not really, you know, like you guys. I like to do everything kind of the Linux way, if possible. Um, so I'm not too familiar with how I can move somebody over from. He said that uh, they're they're on a tenant or something like that. And uh, I'm hoping to move them just to their own standalone Office 365 that, that um, you know, rather than trying to do like a tenanted thing, because it's not really part a uh, main part of our business. And I don't want to be, you know, have to sign up uh, to be a tenant of somebody else. Do you guys have any tips? Like one of the things I was thinking is maybe just downloading all their, I, I think there's like an uh, IMAP integration or an IMAP migration method. Have you guys touched on this or? Um, so, Steve, I'll let you start. Any any thoughts on switching over to Office 365? So, I guess I always start with what is the driver, and and you don't have to have an answer for that. But there, if we're looking for an online solution that isn't Google, I I like Cryptpad. I know that's not what you asked about, but it um, that is a way to go and help kind of farm things out. In terms of the Office 365. I didn't know that the tenants were at, of allowed for anything other than the educational, but I'm not deep into like, so there's the enterprise management and then there's the education sections that can do tenants as far as I'm aware, but that, you know, I'm getting a little outside of my depth when I'm talking on, on these sorts of things. Um, cause I, I deal primarily with Red Hat. So what, products. what it is, what, what it is actually is it's, he's currently on office 365 and he's with his current provider but he, they don't have like their own account. He's with his current provider. So mm-hmm. I'd like him to move him just to his own Office 365. So it's almost like an Office 65 to Office 65 migration. I know this isn't really what you guys specialize in, but I just thought if maybe if you guys had a, if you had run into this. So uh, here, here's something, past. here's something for you. Is it, is it one organization that's splitting off into a, a smaller organization or is it the entire organization is moving from one is, you know, has an office 365 with one IT provider and they're just moving over to you. Uh, the second one. Yeah. Okay, so here's the deal. Microsoft Microsoft has a process for this. So what they need to do is they need to open a support ticket with Microsoft, and what they tell them is they want to they want to prove organizational ownership, and they want to reset the administrative credentials. And what Microsoft will do is they'll do some uh, some basic verification that yes, they actually own that organization, and then they'll just give the organization. A, the uh, an, an administrator account or make one of the users in the organization an organizational admin of Office 365. And from there, Bob's your uncle. Um, this is not uncommon. We run into this all the time. Now, co- typically, the presentation is company has an IT guy. IT guy walks out, says, screw you, takes all the passwords, and they're gone. And then they come to us and say, what do we do now? Um, so I've been through that process many, 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 many times. It's fairly straightforward. Okay. All right, so I would just open up a ticket. Like, I guess I would create a, a new Office 365 admin account and maybe say, hey, I'd like to transfer that over to to this one and prove well, that, I guess, that I'm... That the, they the they will have to do it. The, the, the organization that, unless you work directly for the organization, the somebody, board level or higher, is going to have to have that conversation with Microsoft. You, like, they won't, ex- if you say, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm Tony, the new IT guy, and I'm taking this over, they're not going to help you. If... The guy calls up and he says, right. I'm the president or the CEO of this organization and I can prove it. And here is what I want to do. I'm, uh, our IT guy walked out. Tony's the new guy. Work with him. That they will respond to. Okay. All right. I'll give that a shot, guys. Thank you. All right. Yeah, you bet. 855-450-NOAH. It's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. From the Linux Newswire Newsroom. This is the Week in Review with JT. For the week of January 1st, 2023, here's the Linux and open source headlines. The Unity desktop is working towards its 7.7 update with updated widgets, dash, panels, and notifications. 
GNOME 43.2 has been released with several fixes and updated translations. The Handbrake team has released version 1.6, which includes the new AV1 encoding. Vanilla OS has released its first stable release. Vanilla is a Ubuntu-based distro that aims to provide a stock GNOME experience with on-demand immutability by leveraging two root partitions. Lineage OS, an open-source Android distribution in development since 2016, has just released version 20 that is based on Android 13. The Gen 2-based Calculate Linux has released version 23 with XFCE 4.18, Cinnamon 5.6, and LXQT 1.2, as well as other desktop options. Google has released its OSV Scanner, an open-source front-end interface to the open-source vulnerability database. And in other security news, there's new Linux malware exploiting over two dozen CMS flaws in WordPress. The Linux firewall IPFire has released IPFire 2.27 Core Update 172, with improvements around VPNs and updates key lengths of the root CA certificate for both IPsec and OpenVPN clients, from 2048 to 4096 bit. The PinePhone Pro display support is nearing inclusion in the mainline Linux kernel, hopefully for the 6.3 release. Within the 6.2 kernel, there is a new Compute Accelerator Excel subsystem framework that's part of the Direct Rendering Manager code. The creation of this new subsystem was done by Intel to include their new AI Accelerator driver code. Linux hardware vendor Slimbook has announced a limited edition of their Slimbook Chimera Ventus Linux-powered computer featuring the latest AMD CPUs. And the November 2022 Steam metrics put Linux at a 1.44% market share for its user base. At the same time, the Steam Deck has hit over 7,000 games either verified or playable. Among the top 10 most played games, The Witcher 3, Elden Ring, No Man's Sky, Cyberpunk 2077, and Red Dead Redemption 2. Thank you, JT. And that was a little quick on the draw there. We got one more piece of feedback to get to. So we'll uh, go back to Jason. Jason writes in and says, Hi, no one, Steve. Longtime listener, second time emailer. A friend, of, uh, a friend of mine and I have been asked to do some consulting for a small business. We're looking for some guidance on a pricing model and pitfalls to watch for as we start this new endeavor. The job in question consists of standing up a virtual server, a database, separate machines, and consulting on getting the server to interact with the database and an app that's already in development. The database and server side code are out of the in-house developer's wheelhouse, so there'll be lots of hand-holding around those topics. More specifically, should the work be split into getting the server database stood up and then switching to an hourly rate for the consulting what would be the reasonable hourly rate for this kind of IT admin, database admin, and development work? And should we have a different rate for the different types of work that's being done? Thank you, Jason. So, uh, Steve, I'll let you take a crack at this first. Um, your thoughts on doing some independent consulting? When I did this, that one of the one of the mistakes that I did is I went in with a fixed bid because I didn't know any better, and when you don't have much cost sunk into it, it's not that big of a deal, especially if it's not your main source of income. But one of the pitfalls that I fell into was we did it. We were doing a migration. We virtualized a, a server and then we migrated it to better hardware. But we didn't actually think about allotting any time to do the testing. We just assumed that it was going to be better because we moved it to the hardware and everything seemed to work fine. And, mm -hmm. you know, the actual server itself seemed to be fine. But the stuff that connected into the server ended up having lots of problems. So we burned a lot of hours and we lost some, um, I guess, FaceTime or mm -hmm. uh, how would you call that? Reputation. I guess we took a mm -hmm. reputation bump because or loss because um, we didn't think enough ahead. And so it went into production and we didn't catch these things until it went sideways. And so we were out a lot of hours because we went in with a fixed bid. Like, I think I can do this server work and database, ironically. It was also a David, database and server thing mm -hmm. um, for whatever amount of money it was. So I would say that if you're going to do a fixed bid uh, because they're, they really want you to nail down a price, you need to think long and hard about how you're going to test these things ahead of time and you get them to commit to a testing plan because that's something that I... I totally stumbled out of the gate on. So a couple of things here. If you're going to, if you're going to bid, you're going to bid high, right? So I, I always tell clients, you've got one of two options. Either I will send you a bill when we get done for the amount of time that we worked and it will be billed at our hourly rate and whatever that is, it is. And you won't get charged for any time that we weren't here, but we're going to charge you for every hour that we were here. That's option A. Option B, 
I can give you a bid. I can give you an estimate. Here are the two guarantees I will give you. I've been doing this long enough that I know I'm not going to underbid the project because if I'm going to guess, I'm going to guess high. The second thing you should, so, so you're going to pay more dollars out the door. It's going to be more money. The second thing is if, if you're going, so I would add like 20%. I would say, here's what I think it's going to take. And then I would have like at least a 20% buffer on, on top of that. The other thing is clients do not want to pay you to learn. So if you've not done something before, it is, I, I, I would hesitate to go do a large project in production. That brings me to my third point, which is don't learn in production. If you're going to try something, you should at least have, have R&D'd it or tried it. It's kind of what Steve was talking about before you get to the production thing. And you should include all of that time in your estimate. Now, I'm going to walk that back a little bit. Let's say you get done and the and you get done with it and it's like, okay, well, it would take me this long to learn how to do it and set it up and try it. And then once I got it done, it would take me this long to redo it. And so it's going to cost me, I don't know, 60 hours of, of total time or whatever. You might consider saying, okay, well, if, if I think it's going to take me 60 hours, but like 30 hours of that is me learning how to do it. And then 20 hours is me, uh, you know, actually putting it in, standing it up for real. And then 10 hours because stuff happens. That's fine, and it's fine not to charge them for the R and D. It, it that would be particularly true if you are doing something and they had other bids from other places. Um, as far as what to charge, so the the industry rate in the IT industry is somewhere between one hundred and two hundred dollars an hour. That would be pretty typical if you go to most IT shops and say, "What are you charging?" Um, I, you know, and so where you're going to be in exactly that scale will depend on where in the country you live. So here in North Dakota, we're obviously at the lower end of that scale. Um, if you were in some place like California, or New York, you'd probably be above that. Um, and that's a, by no means a, you know, a, um, a hard set in stone number. They, they Plenty of places go higher than that and some places go lower than that. Um, but it's an average. So those would be some things to, to, to get you started. I would absolutely split out the project into different parts. I would say I would, I would, I would do it in phases. Phase one would be R&D, getting it set up and making sure that everything works to the client's expectations. Phase two would be uh, actually implementing it and the actual deployment of it. And then option three or then, and phase three would be uh, support and guidance. Because if you think you're going to stand it up and it's all going to work perfectly the very first time and nobody's going to have any problems and there'll be no tweaks whatsoever, you're setting yourself up for failure. So I, I, I would, I would, I would price somewhere between that hundred and $200 an hour. I would overestimate by about 20%. If you've not done it before, I wouldn't do an estimate at all. I would be very honest with them and say, hey, we're, we're going to set this up. And so I'll charge you, you know, the amount of time that it takes, which will be a fair deal to you. It'll be a fair, fair deal to me. And then if you've not done, if you've never done it before, and again, from the client's perspective, I could go out and hire company A that's done it a million times. They'll just come in, they, they, they get it done, they move on. Or I can go and hire Jason and I'll pay him for the first 40 hours to learn how to do it. And then, you know, he comes back and actually implements it. If you wanted to cut them a, some, a break there and say, I'm going to do the R&D on my time, I think that's perfectly reasonable as well. Uh, any follow-up, Steve? Nope. I bow to your experience on this one. The Fediverse is awesome, and something remarkable is happening. For the past two weeks, people have been leaving Twitter, and many others are reducing their reliance on it. A great number of ex-Twitter users and employees are making a new home in the Fediverse, fleeing the chaos of Elon Musk's takeover. This exodus includes the prominent figures such as the civil society, tech, law, and policy, business, and journalism. It also represents a rare opportunity to make a better corner of the Internet if we don't screw it up. So this is from an article from the EFF and our question to you at 855-450-NOAH or live at asknoahshow.com, also available in the Geek Lab at geeklab.ninja, what would you pull, what would pull you away from your current social media platform into the Vetiverse? The Fediverse isn't a single gigantic social media platform like Facebook or Twitter. It's expanding into an ecosystem of interconnected social media sites and services that let people interact with each other, no matter which one of those services they have an account on. And today's most popular Fediverse service called Mastodon. Mastodon is very much like Twitter insofar as anyone can host or alter to suit their needs. Each server has what they call an instance. 
And the instance, you can then experiment and build your own experience for you and your users. And users aren't stuck to using the services that they don't like just because their contacts are on that service. Mastodon opens the platform up so that anybody can use the open protocol called ActivityPub, which is a powerful, flexible way to link up all sorts of services and systems. So Mastodon has their idea of how they're going to implement ActivityPub. I think NextCloud is using ActivityPub. The original, one of the original open source, uh, op- uh, open source social media platforms, uh, Diaspora, D- Diaspora, uh, same thing, uses ActivityPub to sync around. And so you can be on any one of those individual platforms because they're speaking the same underlying language, uh, they're able to communicate. And like other distributed systems, it does have some drawbacks. There are some complications. But a federated social media ecosystem represents the possible escape from what we have today with the with with social media that's owned by a corporation and if you don't like the rules you just have to leave now this was an important point that the eff pointed out and i really liked it they said no technology can save us from ourselves but building a more interoperable social media environment may be a chance to have a do-over over current lock-in models and what i think is so eloquently true it's an axiom right it's self-evidently true you can look at it and know that that is true technology isn't going to fix the human problems. If you have an echo chamber on a proprietary social media platform and you go over to your own self-hosted social media platform, you're not necessarily going to solve the problem of an echo chamber. If you have the problem of too much vulgar content that you don't want on your platform and you go and self-host that platform and those people come back over, again, you're not actually solving a problem here. But this is a fix insofar as you don't fix a dictatorship By getting a better dictator, you have to get rid of the dictator and hand the power back to the people, back to the users, back to the community. And instead of just fighting to improve social media and digital right advocates and instant operators, all of these people have started to look to build this interoperable open protocol, baking out of the protocols lock in world that we're in now. And this fresh start is an opportunity for innovation and resilience and it could turn into a really great thing. This is the first time that we're seeing mainstream attention on things like the Fediverse, and in large part because of the shakeup that's happening at Twitter. Five minutes ago, these people didn't know or care about Mastodon. Now, all of a sudden, they look at it and they're like, Mastodon, that's like the thing that is like Twitter, except it's not Twitter and it's not owned by Elon Musk, right? And, and they're starting to figure it out. But the important part about Mastodon, I think, is it's much bigger than just it's an alternative to Twitter. It's the opportunity to drill from the inside out. And this is where communication really excels. If you think about it, you look at what happens inside of uh, Linux conferences. They're almost all born from what? Linux user groups. Why? Because that is the core group of people that get together and are able to exchange ideas. And once they have those solidified and there's a small community that's built, now they can drill from the inside out. And now it starts to expand. And other people come in and say, I want to participate in Linux. Can you teach me about it? Well, yes, we can. And then it turns into a conference. And then they invite a bunch of people in. And now you continue to drill out. And Mastodon functions very much the same way. You can have a small collection of people that have shared ideas or have a shared interest in communicating with each other. And the more you want to expand, the more people that can either come into the platform or the ability to connect into other Mastodon instances to engage in other people in mutually beneficial transactions. Now, When that interaction or when that transaction becomes not mutually beneficial, in other words, that is to say, I don't like what that person is saying. I think that is hateful or disruptive or vulgar or whatever the answer is. You can stop communicating with that person. You can stop communicating with that server. So it gives you complete control over the over your environment. Rather, that's to say, I just want the people that I want on my instance and I won't talk to anybody else. And I want I want to create an echo chamber or the opposite is true. I want to eliminate echo chamber and I want to hear a chorus of voices because with conversation comes change and with perspective removes nuance. And so this is the ability to federate when you want to, the ability to block servers when you don't want to, or the ability to do shared block lists to cater the experience that the users expect. So whatever that means to you, whatever that means to your user group, you have the ability and now you have the technical option to do that. You have the right to voice your opinion. You don't have the right to be heard. And this is something that is 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 really contentious on mainstream social media right now. And this is the 
I think this is a real possibility to fix this. And it's one of the few on-ramps that we have into things like the Fediverse. And so my plea to you uh, is please, please, please. You attract more, you, you, you'll you do more with honey than vinegar. And so if we can be in, in, in a nice soft landing spot for people that are looking to come out of the mainstream social media and come over to a softer landing spot, they will stay here and they will engage and they will enjoy what what they're given. The opposite is true. If we screw it up, it's probably going away. Steve, do you? I know you're not a big social media guy, but would you ever consider getting onto the Fediverse and participating in, in, in social media that way? So the Fediverse has a bunch of things that I think are very interesting moving forward outside of, uh, let's say, the, the mainstream social media. Like mm-hmm. I believe the Fediverse is one of those places you can plug in and, and actually have interactive comments. So you can use yeah. the Fediverse as comment system. And that has some appeal to me because... There are legitimately good comments that are made um, as long as the community is good. Like I, I think about gaming on Linux, for example, and their their comment sections pretty usually has actually good, insightful things about the games. And mm-hmm. it's not, you know, so I do read some of the comments from time to time and I could see that being of use. So I think there are bits and pieces of the Fediverse that have a, a big appeal to me. But um, yeah, I don't know. I don't really care if it's Twitter or Mastodon or, or whatever it is. I just happened to have a Twitter account and uh, I don't know, it's it's been around for a decade or however long I've had it. And if it becomes abandoned, I'll just shrug my shoulders and be like, OK, maybe I'll do, you know, where where's Noah going other than Matrix? That's where I'll go. 855-450-NOAH live at AskNoahShow.com. What would pull you off your current social media platform and get you into the Fediverse? Right into live at AskNoahShow.com. We'd love to hear from you. New York State Governor Kathy, I'm probably going to mispronounce this, Hochul, has signed the Digital Fair Repair Act into law months after it had passed both chambers of the state legislature with overwhelming bipartisan majorities. The bill had originally passed in June, but it was only uh, formally sent to Hochul's desk earlier this month. The governor had until midnight to December 28th to sign the bill or veto it and allow it to pass into law without her signature. The Digital Fair Uh, The Digital Fair Repair Act is the country's first right to repair bill that is passed through the state legislature as opposed to being implemented through executive order and one that's being hailed as a precedent setting law that by the right to repair advocacy groups like iFixit. The law will require companies to provide the same diagnostic tools, repair manuals and parts to the public that they provide to their own repair technicians. So. I want to start by saying this is a huge win. It's a huge win for do-it-yourselfers. It's a huge win for the technical community. It's a huge win for those of us that own IT shops and want to serve customers by helping them get the most out of their technology. We're oftentimes prevented from doing that by the manufacturer, and that is beyond frustrating. People want sustainable technology. People don't like having to buy things multiple times. I've said this before on the program. I'll say it again. If my grandpa knew that people spent $1,000 on a cell phone that they couldn't change the battery in, he would roll over in his grave. I mean, it is, it is unbelievable the amount of money that we invest in disposable technology. And so you have to ask yourself that question. Are you investing in a piece of technology that you can take care of, you can buy once, you can own forever, or are you investing in a piece of disposable technology? I got, for Christmas this year, uh, uh, my best friend sent me a a, a DeWalt stereo. It's one of the 20-volt DeWalt stereos that if you plug it into the outlet, you can charge up your drill batteries. And then if you're not charging the drill batteries and you put the battery in there, the, the, the stereo runs off of the battery. And what was so appealing to me about this, the only other device that I have that I can just take an aux cable and plug it into you know an MP3 player and play music out of is a little Bose speaker. Again, it was a gift. I didn't pay for it. But the Bose speaker has a battery built into it. And the first time I turned the Bose speaker on, it, it dawned on me, well, this is a disposable piece of technology. At some point, that battery is going to go out. And once it goes out, the speaker is useless. The DeWalt stereo, on the other hand, when the battery goes out, I can just pull the battery off the back and put a different one on. And if DeWalt ever stops making those batteries, I can go 3D print, you know, a cartridge and put my own cells in there. So there's ways to keep getting use out of that device. From the article, only devices manufactured and sold in New York after 
on or after July 1st, 2023 will be required to meet the law's requirements, excluding all currently extant products. Business to business and business to government equipment that isn't sold to customers is also excluded and manufacturers won't be able to or won't be required rather to provide passwords or tools for circumventing device security lockouts. So from that, you should take if you have your iPhone and you lock yourself out and you've gone to the Apple store, the Genius Bar and said, hey, can you unlock this? And they say, sign into your iCloud account. I can't do that. Well, you now have a paperweight. Congratulations. This isn't going to fix that. I feel like this law should have fixed that, but this law isn't going to fix that. Manufacturers can also opt to provide what they're calling assemblies, which is a collection of parts rather than the parts by themselves. And they can do this anytime they believe that there is a quote unquote risk to improper installation that heightens the risk of injury, uh, to which I say bunk. But manufacturers want this cost to be as high as possible because they really don't want you doing this. They really want you to go buy a they, they, they want you to fall into the planned obsolescence. And so in addition to the broad exemptions that are already in place, the original bill, which excludes medical devices and uh, motor vehicles and off-road equipment and home appliances. So there's it is by far not a perfect bill to the point that Lewis Rosman uh, says the bill is just too watered down and that there's too many exceptions in the bill and that it, they're not being beholden to the users, but rather the companies. Steve, your thoughts on right to repair and this law that New York has passed. I am big supporter of right to repair. I think that um, this is not necessarily a technology related, but I have one of those roof rakes that are used for cleaning your roofs. Yeah. And it was so cold. I was out there cold cleaning it in like the minus 20 weather and I dropped it just a little ways and it hit the it hit the eaves trough and the blade of it broke. And I looked around and looked around and looked around. I could not find a replaceable blade. And this ties back to Ooh. the, the uh, right to repair bill because if this was a, a technology thing, chances are with the right to repair, I'd be able to find the part instead of having to go out and buy a whole new roof rake. And now I've just got this thing in the garage that I don't know what to do with. It's the same thing with the right to repair, right? You have some small thing that may, like like your example of the battery, mm-hmm. you have the battery go out. And if you don't have the right to repair, then you're probably not going to find aftermarket parts that'll work with, with the battery that you need mm-hmm. and therefore the thing is junk with the bose thing i don't even think i can get it open it looks like it's all sealed yeah and that and that just that drives me crazy disposable it, yeah four hundred dollar disposable speaker it's ridiculous it's like why why would we we have limited resources in terms of stuff we pull out of the ground why on earth would we decide to just be like you know what we have uh, so little resources we're just going to decide that this is no longer going to be any any way usable or reusable and you know we're just rolling in these resources i'll tell you why because it makes the company more money if you have to go rebuy the product as opposed to maintain a product yeah same reason same reason gm discontinued the chevy 3.8 engine it's the same reason that we no longer have glass milk bottles like it's cheaper and it's easier and it's people want disposable they want to buy something they want to use it they want to throw it away and they want to go get a new one and I, it's just, it's a really frustrating thing. But th- th- this is good news. This is good news. It's not perfect. The bill leaves something to be desired. But at the end of the day, it's better than what we had before, which was nothing. So hopefully this will be a model for other states. Hopefully they will jump on board. Hopefully as this progresses through other states, it will gain more teeth and it will become more effective. And remember, if Apple and anybody else wants to sell devices in New York, they have to abide by this. So it, it, it starts the process. It gets the ball rolling. Hey, the music in our ears, it means we're out of time. If you enjoyed this episode, I invite you to head over to the website podcast.asnoahshow.com. There you will find all of the articles and references that we use to make the show. Join us in the Geek Lab, geeklab.ninja. They have plenty of stuff to share and plenty of insight to add. We'll be back next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, asnoahshow.com. Have a good week.